and we hear it, we automatically know and can even tell when someone is reading something that yes. is written. They're like, ah, they're reading. <laughs> and it's usually not their fault, it's that they're reading something that was written to be read by the eye, not for sound. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision-making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. This is the first part of my interview with John Watkiss. As a high-stakes performance coach, professional speaker, and the author of a book called Speaking Notes, The Eight Essential Elements to Make Your Speech Music to Their Ears, my next guest knows a thing or two about public speaking and connecting with an audience. Clients seek him out when they have to communicate at their best during presentations, pitches, and interviews. His name is John Watkiss, and here's an interesting fact. He's also the first Canadian-born actor to play Mufasa in the Disney musical The Lion King. Join us for a fascinating discussion about public speaking, storytelling, voiceovers, and many things sound in between. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Jody. Glad to be here. I'd like to start off the podcast with a particular question about how sound moved you. So like, what's your earliest memory of how sound moved you? The earliest memory I can think of of how sound moved me was after an accident, and it, it was my fault. My mother had parked the green Dodge Dart in front of our building, and she told me to come out on her side, and, and I didn't. She said, I want you to come out this side. I said, no, I'm going to go out on this side. Now, the side I was on was where the cars would drive by. So without looking, I opened the door, and... After that, I don't remember much, ex oh. except for crying and screaming. And because what had happened was a Winnebago caught the door and pulled it open, and I flew through the window of that car. Oh my goodness! Yes. So I still have stitches to this day. I was probably four or five at the time. Now the thing is, what what they did with the window is they put plastic on the window so that as we drove, because of course I smashed it. As we drove, it would make this crazy sound. And then I just remember crying in the back of the car because of this crazy flapping sound that the plastic made as we drove. So that's how I remember sound moving me for the very first time. It was, it was frightening. It was that flapping sound. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I can imagine. My goodness. That's pretty traumatic as a four-year-old. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You could have had... I don't know. Did you have PTSD after that? Like, I mean, a lot of that would be like that traumatic experience would be a lot to do with sound, wouldn't it? It could be. The thing is, it went so fast. I, I don't remember going through the window. I don't remember being conscious. I do remember hearing crying and maybe even hearing my own crying. But that was about the, the size of it. And then I remember fighting the nurses as they tried to hold me down to put the, the stitches in. Because back then, they didn't, they didn't give you the needle to deaden the feeling. So it was just straight stitches. And I, I fought with everything I had. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's, that's quite the beginning. 
<laughs> My goodness. Okay. Well, your your mom must have been totally freaked out. <laughs> I think so. As she tells the story, she doesn't remember much either, except for running with me in her hands. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, moving on from that. My goodness. Uh quite an intro. Um so what what exactly is your your background in what you're doing now? I know that you went from Toronto, so originally that's where you were from? Yes, born and raised. Oh great. Okay. So fellow Torontonian, here we go. Uh so um and you moved to Washington then and then Florida or the other way around? Other way around. I moved to Florida back in 2009, I believe. And did that just as a way of trying something new. My mother had been in the States as a nurse for quite some time. Okay. And when she got her citizenship, they asked her, do you have any family you want to sponsor? So we filled out sponsorship forms. It took six and a half years. Wow. And yes, after the six and a half years of another payments due, I finally came down. And that's how I got here. I, I went to Washington for one year because I do quite a bit of public speaking coaching in the DC area. Okay. And I absolutely love it. But then winter hit and I was reminded that I don't like winter. So I'm back in Florida. That's a very good reminder. Yes. Toronto in the winter is not a fun place. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> uh, although I, I do recall, and, and I explored them a lot myself, that the path underneath most of Toronto kind of makes us all into mole people when winter comes around. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's funny because I, I never thought much of it. You just That's what you do when you're in Toronto. You walk in the path. Yeah. And then when people would hear that I'm from Toronto, they'd say, oh, you guys have that underground. I guess we do. And we thought of it as underground. It just escape from the cold is all. Yeah. Well, I mean, the subways are, are huge here, too. So, you know, that's it's just kind of like par for the course. It's kind of all intertwined. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, escaping the cold. Definitely. <laughs> So you mentioned that you do a lot of public speaking in um, and coaching and all of that in Washington. So how did you get interested in public speaking? When when did that become a thing for you? I know you did some acting as well, right? Yes. So I love the spoken word. It's always been part of what I did. Even back in junior high school, I remember when we would sell chocolate bars, the average or the regular sale for chocolate bar is, hi, would you like to buy a chocolate bar? That's not how I sold chocolate bars. Hi, I'm John Watkins, and I go to Oakdale Junior High School, and we're fundraising so that we can send ourselves to camp and to make sure that we have other activities to keep us out of trouble. And I was wondering if you would be willing to help us out by purchasing this chocolate bar for only $2. <laughs> well, I'd buy. <laughs> <laughs> there was always just the fluent communication, and I think a lot of it has to do with being in a multicultural city like Toronto. Sure. I'm, I'm born in Toronto, but my parents are Jamaican. Okay. So I'm a first generation. And in my school, you would have the, the Jamaicans and Koreans who came for the first time, Ecuadorians, you name it. They came from all over the world. And we had English as a second language classes within our school. Well, the Jamaicans who had an accent were put in English as a second language class, along with international students who didn't speak a word of English. Oh. So it was always apparent to me 
that the way you speak will determine how people judge you and the perception that they have of you. So I've always been careful to watch the way that I speak. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I guess you wrote a book on that too, right? So um, Speaking Notes, is that what it's called? Speaking Notes is the name of it. And that came not intentionally or not purposely. It was a client who, who made a, a mention to me. Actually, she asked a question because I had written a speech for her and she said, do you play a musical instrument? So I said to her, why are you asking? Keep in mind, this is early 2000. There weren't a lot of internet searches where you could just find out what people did and when. So she didn't know about my musical background. Sure. And I said, well, that's an odd question. Why are you asking? And her reason was that she was told, if you're going to hire a speechwriter, make sure they're musical. Because since there's a difference between writing for the ear versus writing for the eye, the speechwriter has to be able to write for the ear so that there's rhythm and timing and pauses. And she said when she read my speech, she could tell that it had all those elements in there. And so she had meant to ask me and forgot. She said, had I heard the theory and what did I think? I had never heard the theory and I didn't know what I thought because when I wrote speeches, I just wrote what sounded good to me. And I didn't realize that I was drawing on a lifetime of music. I mean, my grandmother, she was, she was 99 years, 360 days before she died. And she played the harmonica. In fact, in her 90s, she would visit the assisted living facilities and say she was playing for the old people. <laughs> had Good for uncle. her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, my uncle plays it on numerous instruments. My aunt, the piano, everyone in my family is musical. But I had never thought to myself, okay, I'm going to do this to a certain rhythm or I'm going to go for a crescendo. So I thought, let me see if there's anything written about this theory. And I looked for anything that I could find that linked music to speeches. And there really wasn't anything written. That's surprising. It was surprising. But again, <laughs> I had never heard the, the theory. So sure. <laughs> I thought, let me study them separately. Let me look at the most successful speeches in history. The I have a dream speech. Ask not what your country can do for you. We will fight on the beaches. And then I went, I studied music composition. And I found out that there were eight elements in music that are also in successful speeches. And that's how speaking notes came about, is that I found those musical elements that were in the speeches that helped people to remember, repeat, and respond to the speeches the way we do with music. Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio branding strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website and I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. 
so maybe it's worth your while. Totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that too. Now, back to the podcast. Are there any um, like tips from the book that you might want to share with people just so you can give them a bit of a teaser? <laughs> sure, absolutely. We always want to be memorable whenever we give a speech. And in music, we know what's called a hook. Yes. But that hook is the part of the song that it catches the ear of the listener. And in a song, it's not always easy to come up with it. But if, for an example, if you do the lion sleeps tonight, there's the hook. Everybody's going to sing it. Yes. If you're in a nightclub and they're playing Lady Marmalade, this part of the song comes on, even if you don't speak French or know what it means. Everybody yeah. is singing yeah. that part of the song. Sure. But that's the hook. It's the, it's the one part we stick to. Well, speeches are very much the same. Give me liberty or give me death. We came, we saw, we conquered. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream that one day my four children will live in a world where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. All of these are hooks that we haven't heard for decades, but we could recite back automatically because of the way they're constructed. So the question is, what is that construction? Part of it is alliteration, the repetition of consonant sound, which is why I say a successful speech is one you remember, repeat, respond to. We have that memory of the R. That's one of the keys to creating a hook in your speeches. Another way is also in that example that I use threes. For whatever reason, we remember threes more readily than we would a four or two. And one example of that, Winston Churchill, when we repeat after him, we say, I have nothing to offer but blood, sweat, and tears. The actual quote was, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But we remember three instead of four. I came, I saw, I conquered. Now abide, faith, hope, love, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. All of these we remember in threes because of the rhythm. So if you're trying to create a hook that people will remember that the sticks in their brain, if you can use the repetition of the consonant sounds plus the three, that's another way. The easiest way, and not necessarily easy to put together, but easy to remember, if we go back to the O.J. Simpson trial, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Johnny Cochran, <laughs> in, in one phrase, sums up in everything that was said, the most memorable phrase, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, re we remember that scene. Rhyming is a way to remember information. And of course, when you look at the construction of a song, it's usually that rhyming scheme that happens within the music and within the words. And there are rhyming dictionaries online that you can now just rhyming dictionary to look up all the rhyming words that would be helpful. So those are just a couple ways that you can incorporate a hook into the words that you use in order to make them memorable. 
I love that. Yeah. And it's those are some really good tips, too. It, it's actually kind of interesting because I know that a lot of um, advertisers that write or advertising writers who write for radio for voice only have the same kind of issue with writing speeches because they have to write for the ear, not for the for the eye. Right. So it's yeah, it's definitely a, a thing that people who are immersed in sound need to be aware of. <laughs> Absolutely. And we hear it. We automatically know and can even tell when someone is reading something that yes. is written You're like, ah, the reading. And it's usually not their fault. It's that they're reading something that was written to be read by the eye, not for sound. Yes. And that's why it sounds so odd. Exactly it. And actually moving on from that, uh, the saying that it's not what you said, it's how you said it. Um, the sound of how you are going to perform the, the speech, I guess. It, so that's true in public speaking then too? It is true. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. There, there are a couple of myths to, well, one myth in particular, a study that said that communication is only 7% words. Uh, the study goes back to Professor Albert Morabian, 1971, UCLA, Silent Messages, where he did a number of different tests, experiments. And when I say experiments, he might have tried to step in front of someone in line and give them a particular look to see if they'd let him in. Uh -huh. That's what I mean by test or experiment. Sure. And they found when, when there was a misunderstanding or a lack of trust, 7% of that distrust came from words. 38% was tone of voice. 55% was body language. Interesting. That's really what the study was about. Yeah, so that when there was misunderstanding, we've heard someone say, I'm sorry. And you know they meant it. Or you've heard them say, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, definitely Ooh, okay, different. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take a step back. So there, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so we, we've got that same word, but now you pick up the nuance in there that they're not really sorry. Yeah. So yes, it, in the it's not what you say, it's how you say it. We can choose the right words. It is important to make sure that the emotion we're trying to bring across comes out because you also have people, even culturally, who don't speak with a lot of emotion. And if you're from a culture where you expect emotion, then you're never quite sure how to take the level of communication that they're trying to bring across. So how you say it, culturally, among age, there's such a, an impact that it makes. And you always wanna be aware of how you're speaking and how it impacts the people that you, you're speaking to. Sure. Yeah. And I know you're taking um, voice acting coaching now. Is that what you're you're in the middle of that? I am. And yeah, it's an interesting process because you've got to read and not sound like you're like you're reading. Well, exactly. I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about here, which is why I even raised the point. Yeah. <laughs> and what I have found most challenging and my coaches has always tried to get me past this is it says, don't read the punctuation. <laughs> that's but tricky. You know, it's different in voiceover than it is when you're doing a presentation. Mm -hmm. Because in, in the commercials, you just want to go over the, the commas and pretend they're not there. Whereas when you're speaking in a presentation, you want to hit those commas, have more pause because you're not limited by time. 
where you, you have to get something through in a, in a quick period. So even within those two different disciplines, there is a difference in the way that you, you how the communication. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's a, a lot of interesting parallels, but interesting differences too, which is, yeah, what makes it challenging actually. So, I mean, I, I guess the difference is that when you're doing a speech, people know you're doing a speech. Yes. <laughs> you know, like they're, they're aware, <laughs> right? Yes. When you're doing voiceover, they're not supposed to be aware. You're not supposed to have that uh, you're not supposed to break the fourth wall. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's, it's this conversation and you're not necessarily supposed to be given time to think in a voiceover. Whereas in a presentation, you want to ask a question and provide people that long period of time to process what you just said or the question that you just asked. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting there are interesting parallels and interesting differences in it. And yeah, I, I mean, that's part of what I love about it, that it has so many different nuances. Yes. <laughs> but but yeah, but I'm not a public speaker. Like that kind of terrifies me, <laughs> that kind of idea. So, I mean, you definitely have the advantage in being comfortable with both. I think that's awesome. <laughs> and it does take a lot of work. What is missing? And I just alluded to it but you'll find most speakers don't want to do it is silence ah yes. so when, we, when we speak about sound the sound of silence can be uncomfortable i remember in toronto i used to live over the, the dvp the don valley parkway oh yeah yes yeah, so you, you already get that they don't call it a parkway for nothing people they do not call it a parkway for nothing yeah <laughs> Just sound it's going constant <laughs> traffic it doesn't end yeah. so you hear it, but now it just becomes white noise. It's in the background. You're you're accustomed to it. And after living in that environment for so long, I then moved out to Scarborough in the, the boroughs in the back of neighborhoods where there were no streets. And I remember the, the silence being deafening. Oh, yes. Like, oh, my goodness. There's, it felt like a vacuum. So even that sound of silence has a completely different effect. And most people, when it comes to conversation, whether it's on the stage or just one-on-one, -on -one, silence is so uncomfortable because we're not accustomed to it. It really means a lot to me when you take the time to write a review of this show. So I want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank you when you do. Mike GMK writes, Secret weapon hidden in plain sight. I wish I had some power to put this cast in front of everyone who writes advertising. Most people who write it in the digital age are absolutely unaware of the power of sound and the spoken word. So along comes Jody with the most powerful communication tool there is, hidden in plain sight, the spoken word. And not just that, but proof, in episode after episode, of the power audio has to affect our very thoughts. What marketer or brand manager wouldn't want that? I've done sound design, scripting, production, and voice for radio, TV, and videos for, um, well, a good while. I'm now listening to every episode of this show. I'm learning new things about sound in nearly every show. For anyone in advertising, video, audiobooks, television, and whatever I've missed, this podcast is of great value. Thanks so much, Mike. I'm really glad you're getting value from the podcast, and I so appreciate the kind words. And now, back to the show. 
Well, that's why we say um and like and you know all over the place, right? We need our filler words to make us more comfortable. Exactly. <laughs> We're just getting as rid guilty. of it. <laughs> yes, I am just as guilty as any person in any uh, interview or speech or whatever. Yes, it, it can be very uncomfortable. So what do you do to get past that? You just practice it. You give yourself a couple seconds mm-hmm. and then you give yourself three seconds. It is the repetition and getting used to it because it will always feel like it's too long, especially if you were looking at the other person. (laughs) You can see the need. If they ask you a question, you can see their need for you to say something right away. Sometimes it will be that they're they're leaning in or other times it's that they'll jump in and start answering the question for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Guessing. Let's start guessing. Mm-hmm. So it's always it will always be a challenge. It's just you you just have to remind yourself constantly to allow for it. And this is where I believe it was Jimi Hendrix who said, "It's not the notes I play, but the spaces in between." Yeah, it may have been another musician, but that's that's where the key comes in: that those spaces and those pauses that add to the musicality and the sound. This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time. Until next time.